Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Moab resident Steph Davis is a superstar in the climbing community, but when her husband made a controversial climb of Delicate Arch, the media fallout and the toll on her marriage left her without a partner, a career, a source of income, or a purpose. Accompanied by her beloved dog Fletch, she set off in search of a new identity and discovered skydiving. Though falling out of an airplane is antithetical to a climber's control, she discovered new hope and joy in letting go. Steph Davis's book, Learning to Fly, an uncommon memoir of human flight, unexpected love, and one amazing dog, is out in paperback with a new epilogue. We're going to revisit our conversation from 2013 on the program today. Steph Davis, pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you uh, coming on. Uh, so let's uh, let's jump right in. I wonder if I could have you uh, read just the very first page of the of the book, just to set the flavor of this. Some some exciting stuff all through the oh, book. Okay. <laughs> and and then we'll get in, into uh, the beginnings of of the story, uh, how you discovered rock climbing, and and then what happened. Uh, this is just the. Uh, it's even before chapter one starts. Just that one oh, okay. page there. Falling, falling into dead air felt nothing like I thought it would. I'd spent much of my life trying not to think about it. It was my worst nightmare. After 20 years of going up rock faces and mountains, the idea of free falling through the air was essentially X'd out in my brain because you can't think about falling when you're climbing or you won't go climbing anymore. In the first few instances during my climbing career, my mind had flicked there. I'd yanked it right back. I figured if the big fall ever came, it would all be over, wham, just like that. I'd slip off, I'd start falling, a stab of panic, then somehow I would just disappear or everything would go black or something, and that would be at the end. Yeah, just a, that's amazing. <laughs> um, and, and for a person, <laughs> person uh, sort of, you know, uh, land-bound like myself, and a lot of people I'm sure you encounter, uh, I'll just start off with the question you always get, why do you climb? That's a good question. Everybody's always trying to answer that question. Um, I think that climbing is, it's really physical, um, which is a great thing, but it's also very mental and kind of, um, it's kind of emotional too. So it, it seems like it demands everything you have when you're doing it. And there's also a really strong feeling of community and it's a great excuse to travel to some amazing places. Of course, um, for a person like me, I you know I'm I'm too cautious. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, the way I see it, be kind of a dance with death. I, especially if you're free doing a free solo, you you just have to be very careful and and to, to not fall, obviously. Yeah, well, you know, with climbing, there's really safe ways to climb. You could be a climber all your life and and be doing a very safe activity. Um, for example, they're talking about putting climbing into the Olympics pretty soon, and these are styles of climbing that are really, really safe. It would be um, almost unheard of to die or even get seriously hurt when you're doing indoor climbing with ropes, um, or you know, even a lot of outdoor climbing is really, really safe. But like you say, it's a little more unusual um, to climb without a rope I think everybody can understand, you know, why that's a very appealing kind of a pure form of it, but it's definitely the type that would be more dangerous. And and you've done some of this, right? And continue to do yeah, some of this? Yeah, um, you know, I, I, I like to do all types of climbing. And to me, free solo climbing, that's, that's what you call it when you climb without a rope. That's just one more style of climbing. So it's something that, that I definitely like to do on occasion. And so when you're doing that... Uh, I don't know. Do you feel fear? Well, fear is is such a strong emotion, you know. it's. I think that a lot of times people think that if you do these things, you just somehow aren't afraid. <laughs> but, um, you know, I get scared all the time. And it's more a question of how you deal with it and just learning how to, how to pay attention, um, you know, not to be foolish about things, but also not to get trapped. Um, and stopped from doing things just because you start to feel feelings of fear. So you write about, uh, it's a mental dialogue, it's an engagement with fear. I, I guess you have to have some fear, or or maybe you'd be, become reckless. 
Yeah, I mean, like I say, I, I get scared all the time. <laughs> I just, I just um, you know, figure out how to work with it. And and sometimes if you really can't handle it, um, you know, if you're feeling so scared, sometimes the right thing is not to do the thing you're trying to do because you won't be able to function well. But what, what becomes really um, empowering, I guess, is to figure out how to not get stuck in that place, to say, okay, you know, I'm scared and and this is a serious moment, but how can I perform well and, and keep going anyway? Now, another thing you write, uh, you know, one, one motivation can be can be feared, you know, stay safe, stay on the rock. Another is pride. You want to, you want to do something. Uh, you want to accomplish something. Yeah, well, that, that's why it's, um, and you know, that's a big part of the reason I wanted to write this book was that it's a, it's an interesting shift to be a climber, um, who turns into a jumper because mm-hmm. as a climber, you really don't want to fall. Either it's dangerous, um, you know, maybe you don't have a rope and falling is going to be a really bad option. Or, you know, maybe it's the safe kind of climbing and you're just trying to succeed, and if you fall, it means you didn't succeed. So as a climber, falling is usually pretty much bad in every way. And so it's it's really interesting to start skydiving, um, jumping off cliffs, and then the whole point is to fall. So it's a completely opposite mental state. How do you make that transition? We'll get into this, of course, in more depth as we go along, but uh, you have an interesting conversation with your friend Marta in, in, in the book. Um, she's a, a, a jumper, right? And, and, uh, but she's trying to get into rock climbing, and she practices on your wallet at, at, at your home, and she's not making the progress that uh, you feel she, she's been making. Yeah, Marta is a um, really amazing woman. She's one of the most experienced base jumpers in the world. Um, base jumping is relatively new. It started in the late 80s and early 90s and is kind of entering, I would call it a heyday right now. So it's progressed really quickly with um, equipment and techniques. But the people jumping in the 80s and 90s were really the pioneers of the sport, and Marta was one of those people. So she's someone I have this enormous amount of respect for as a base jumper. And and it was neat to see her trying to start climbing at the same time that I was trying to start base jumping because there is this really big mental conflict, um, you know, for a climber doing normal, safe type of climbing, going to the point of falling is really how you progress, even though it's, you know, every time you fall, it's, you didn't do it, so you have to try again, and you just kind of pick yourself up and try again, try again, and push and push, um, and what I had to learn as a base jumper is that pushing, you know, beyond your limits is not what you want to do because it is so high commitment. And so the the right way as a base jumper is to become more experienced, more skilled, and then always step back a little bit from that so you're not kind of riding that crazy edge. Um, and so it's, it's funny to, you know, I think anybody that excels in a, a certain sport it kind of predisposes you to be able to enter another sport, but there's interesting um, mental states like that that you really have to check those out and think about it a little bit because sometimes your instincts aren't necessarily the right for the new sport you're trying to do. Hmm. We're talking with Steph Davis, uh, Moab resident. Uh, she, along with her uh, husband, uh, owns a business in uh, in Moab. Um, I've forgotten the name of the business. Steph it's Davis. called Moab Base Adventures. Moab Base Adventures. It's um, it's we do a lot of guiding of base jumpers, but we're also doing a, a really um, kind of unique thing nowadays. It's tandem base jumping. So there's always been tandem skydiving where you can just go to a drop zone. You know, anyone can and say, "I want to do a skydive," and then you'll be strapped to an experienced person and you can make a skydive. But there hasn't really been that for base jumping in the past. So so we're now offering that here in Moab, and you can basically come to Moab and do a base jump. <laughs> hmm. 
Very good. Uh, the, the new book just out this week, Learning to Fly, an Uncommon Memoir of Human Flight, Unexpected Love, and One Amazing Dog. We'll get to talking about uh, uh, Steph's uh, dog, Fletch. Um, and uh, for your questions and comments to Steph Davis, you can reach us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Steph Davis, my guest for the hour. Let's backtrack a little bit. You uh, grew up in the suburbs. Uh, you were an aspiring concert pianist, I understand. Yes, yes. I um, I didn't really do any outdoor sports. I mean, I played in the woods and stuff, but <laughs> my family wasn't a big outdoor sports family, so a lot more academically oriented. Um, I did a lot of music, and, you know, in school I, I did a little bit of basic school sports, but, but nothing really extreme or intensive like what I ended up doing for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, quite the transition. We'll talk about that. Uh, you went on to receive a master's degree from Colorado State in Literature, subsequently dropped out of law school to become a professional climber. Let's talk a little bit about w- when you discovered climbing, freshman year in college. What? Uh, how did that happen? Um, I was just at University of Maryland hanging out at lunchtime, and I had gotten a little bit into mountain biking right then, and I was just sitting outside with my bike and a guy walked up and said, do you want to go rock climbing? And funny enough, I hadn't ever heard of rock climbing because, you know, this was 1991. So there wasn't the emphasis on outdoor sports in the media like there is now. And, and, um, for some reason I just never heard of it. So mainly out of curiosity to find out what it was, I just went out climbing with him that day and, and, um, just fell in love with it right away. What was it about that that first climb that uh, made you fall in love with it? I think a lot of things. I think um, being something so unknown to me, I was really intrigued. I've always been super curious about things. And so, you know, here I was doing this thing I'd never heard of that I couldn't even imagine. And I I couldn't believe there was like a whole world behind it that I hadn't known existed. So I think it was mainly a sense of curiosity at first. And then climbing is really, it's a very engaging thing. A lot of people devote their lives to it. Um, it can really suck people in. And I guess I was just no different. Hmm. And so this this progressed. Uh, you, were, you continued going to school. Of course, you went on to get your, your master's and went to, went to law school. Um, but climbing became more and more important. And along the way, you you must have become very accomplished. I'm reading here that you were... Uh, the first woman to free climb the Salate Wall at El Capitan. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. The second woman to free uh-huh, right. El Capitan in a day. First, uh, first one to uh, make the day ascent of the Torre Eger in Patagonia. First woman to climb some of that peak. You became a became a star in the climbing world. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I became a professional climber um, and just climbed pretty much nonstop through all that period traveling everywhere, um, loosely based out of Moab at that time, because I needed to have somewhat of a home base, but I was just mostly going on expeditions and um, climbing trips all the time. And you chronicle some of this in A Climber's uh, High Infatuation, A Climber's Guide to, to Love and Gravity, previous book. By the way, that's the uh, name of the website, if you're interested, highinfatuation.com, and a blog as well. Uh, so, And then sponsorships came along as well. You were, you write that you, you know, you weren't rich, you were kind of living out of your car, but you were living the life you wanted to live and, uh, and being supported at least in part by sponsorships. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, that was a, a progression in the climbing world. It was, um, I think a transitional stage where climbing was growing a little bit more to the point where, um, climbing companies started to enter that realm of sponsoring athletes, which today is a little more common than it was at the time. So, so that point is reserved for, I guess, you know, stars like yourself that made some unique accomplishments and such. Uh, you, uh, you, you met your first husband this way. He, he was your climbing partner. Along the way, you got married. Yes. So you're 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 living a very you're living the life you wanted. Yeah, uh, yeah. I am fortunate to say that I always have been, and and um, and I've been really lucky that way. Uh, so we're going to take a brief break. We'll come back and uh, talk about what happened when uh, Steph's husband uh, decided to climb Delicate Arch. There's a firestorm in the media, 
and uh, things go bad for a while uh, before uh, Steph Davis uh, learns to fly. That's the uh, title of her new memoir, Learning to Fly, an Uncommon Memoir of Human Flight, Unexpected Love, and One Amazing Dog. Steph Davis, Moab resident and uh, author of this book. Uh, We'll talk more about it following the break. Welcome to Science by the Slice. To address the frightening public health concerns of increasingly frequent drug-resistant pathogens, USU Uinta Basin biology professor Leanna Etchberger and her students are on the hunt for new antibiotics. The students collect soil samples and antibiotic-producing microbes in the vernal area and upload their findings to a central database of samples from around the world. Their efforts contribute to a global effort to combat disease. This segment of Science by the Slice is brought to you by the USU College of Science, offering degree programs in mathematics and varied scientific disciplines. Details at usu.edu science. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Steph Davis. She's a star in the climbing community, a Moab resident, and owns with her husband a, a base jumping business, Moab Base Adventures. Uh, she is the author of a new book, Learning to Fly, the Uncommon Memoir of Human Flight, Unexpected Love, and One Amazing Dog. Uh, Steph Davis had achieved her dream. She, uh, in fact, dropped out of law school to, to go for it and became a star in the climbing community, had sponsorships, and uh, married her climbing uh, partner, a, uh, a dream life, until... Her, uh, her husband decided to climb Delicate Arch, which became very controversial, put um, pressure on their marriage, which then uh, fell apart. Uh, first of all, before we get into that, uh, Steph Davis, I wonder, you'd uh, received a master's in uh, literature, and you were going to uh, law school. I wonder, from the perspective of your parents, when you drop out of law school to go uh, climbing full-time, what did they think? I think that was really hard on everyone at the time. Um, my brother, my brother actually lives in Salt Lake and he's an ER doctor and I was, um, you know, had gotten an advanced degree and was kind of expected to get more. And that was just, that was kind of the, the culture of my family. So I think that when I finally made the break and said, you know, no more grad school, I'm just, I'm just ready to move on. I think for them, it was really scary and, and, um, hard to understand and, you know, I felt that way too a little bit, mm-hmm. but now, you know, all these years later, um, I think that everyone's really happy with um, the way things have turned out. And you, you don't regret it at all? No, I don't. I, you know, you can't really regret anything in life because it's why you are where you are. Mm. I notice on your website, highinfatuation.com, you have uh, you know people uh, reporting on their adventures and uh, and, uh, and some of them are asking you questions, and there's a long letter, a, a message from a, a person who's in med school and but loves climbing too, and they're for obvious reasons asking you for advice. And uh, yeah, it's so I don't funny. know what your advice I, would I be. That, um, I think that so many people know the story of, um, because I, I write about it in my first book, of you know dropping out of law school and, and living in my car and, and then having all these great adventures, so... I think in some ways I've become just like poster child for leaving it all to do what you want. But I always have to remind them and say, hey, you know, I got a bachelor's degree. I got a master's degree. <laughs> I, um, you know, I didn't just chuck it all. I, I went through quite a lot of, um, of school and, and education is really important to me. And then finally said, okay, you know, what's my final decision now? I am where I'm at. So Whenever students write write to me and they say, you know, I'm in high school, I'm starting college, I just want to go live in my car, and I, I say, well, you know, I, I think you ought to finish your education and, and see what it looks like after that, because I just feel like learning is the biggest gift that we can get. 
Hmm. Yeah, I think, uh, and, and your advice would carry a lot of weight, I'm sure. So I'm, I'm sure there's some parents out there who are glad that you're, <laughs> you're dispensing that kind of advice. Um, <laughs> well, you know, but it's not to say don't follow your dreams. It's just to say, I mean, ideally you should have it all. So yeah, right. Get, <laughs> try to figure out how to, how to do it all if you can. Get some education before you follow your, your dream. Uh, let's talk a little bit about about this. Your your husband at the time. You're living this dream life. You're both climbing. I, I think you both have sponsorships, right? And uh, yeah, we. Um, I think part of the whole the whole reason things turned out the way they did was that we had a lot of mutual sponsors. Um, and you know, I guess when you're married, you just in some ways get considered to be the same, even though you're not really. Mm-hmm. Um, so so Dean is his name, right? They have been why. The result of that whole scenario was mm. both of us right. having lost sponsors. Even though you didn't, you didn't make that climb. I guess they they considered they didn't want the publicity. No, I, yeah. I didn't. Um, you know, it wasn't really on my project list, and not something that appealed to me personally. Um, but but yeah, I guess like I said, I guess that's what happens sometimes. You get kind of thrown together. So he decides to to climb Delicate Arch. Of course, this is uh, controversial because I, I guess what because the. Uh, some people are afraid of damage to the arch. It's, after all, a delicate arch. Uh, so, it, it, yeah, what I, was yes, your? I, I, yeah, it's still a little mysterious to me why it was so controversial. But, but I, I guess that could have been where it came from. What, what did you think when he said, "I'm, I want to climb delicate arch"? Um, well, I remember at the time he he said he wanted to do it, and I just kind of thought, "Huh, why?" It's not a super inspiring thing to climb as a climb. Um. But, you know, we'd always had different projects when we were married. Sometimes I would get excited about something, and he'd want to do something else, and that was totally fine. And so I was like, yeah, that doesn't really sound that interesting, but, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> have fun. And that was pretty much as much as it had impact to me at the time. So you definitely didn't didn't see the media firestorm that, that came? No, I don't think anybody did. Um, in fact, I know nobody did because... That certainly wasn't the intention. And so um, this was controversial, uh, you know, in, in the general public, controversial among climate community as well? Yeah, I think um, I think what happened, I think, and again, this is just me, you know, trying to understand and, and create my own theories because it was such an unusual thing. Um, my, my current theory is that as far as the climbing community went, it was a peculiar moment in time where the climbing world had just kind of started to realize that the internet was out there and not really have a lot of understanding of social media and, you know, basically what the internet was going to become. And so I think at first um, there was a lot of um, activity on climbing forums rather than than, um, maybe more, more professional established types of venues. And then a lot of times the forums, you just get people kind of sitting around bored and, you know, expressing various opinions and it just kind of snowballs from there. So I think that that kind of happened on the climbing end and somehow that caught the attention of the mainstream side and I guess for some reason it became to seem like a big controversy. Now this was, I understand this wasn't illegal. He'd, I don't know if he'd, he had to get a permit or not, but it, I don't think it was illegal for him to climb that, right? No, no, you know, from from a climber's point of view, it was just a climber climbing a rock. So it was it was really mysterious as to why it became such a big deal. Mm-hmm. And I suppose uh, this is me, my theory, uh, just uh, as to why the controversy. Had one reason maybe he wanted to climb it was it's an icon. It's on the license plate. <laughs> if you done, maybe that's one of the reasons for the controversy as well. Uh, just barely, yeah, barely I think it appealed to him aesthetically because, you know, you it was kind of a, a cool idea um, in that way. Like, a lot of people aren't familiar with climbing. A lot of people aren't aware of climbing, will never go climbing. And it just seemed like a fun way to kind of bring it to a, the consciousness of people who aren't climbers. But obviously it didn't really come over um, in the kind of fun-spirited way it was intended. And I'm sure he didn't. He didn't foresee the firestorm that happened. No, no, it was it was really confusing. I think for everyone. So this put a lot of pressure on your marriage. Uh, the sponsorships dropped out, so you don't have your the, the income that you had, and and eventually your your marriage dissolves. So you're now alone with without the income from sponsorships. Uh, so so then, what did you do? 
Um, I just basically did what I had always done, which was I went climbing and and took off with my dog Fletcher and and just said, what am I going to do next? Um, but then it kind of changed pretty drastically when I said, well, you know, maybe I just want to try something different right now and I'll start learning how to skydive because that's about the most opposite thing of climbing I could think of. Is, is that and why? Is so that why I, you went for it? Because it was opposite? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways that was why. And I, I think I really wanted to do something different at that moment mm. and just shake off all the other stuff. Um, and at the same time, I, I think that as a climber, the idea of falling is so forbidden and has so much badness wrapped into it. I, I a little bit just kind of wanted to explore that. And, and you know, when you're skydiving and base jumping, the whole idea is to fall. That's what you want to do. Mm. And so for someone climbing all the time who never wanted to fall, it was kind of an intriguing idea to say, you know what, let's just turn that on its head and, and see what this is all about. So what was going on emotionally then to, to, to make this, this transition? Did, did, had, had climbing lost some of its joy for you? And I think you're right as well. There, you know, you were, you were at a loss and uh, you, you were, had stopped trusting yourself. You had some trust issues. This must have been a very emotional transformation as well. Yeah, I, I really did have a very hard time right then. You know, I've, I've always lived a very free, non-traditional lifestyle. Um, and, and when you live like that, you don't have a set routine and you don't have a lot of anchors and, and there's, there's not the normal level of stability I think that you would have in a, in a more regular type of lifestyle. So to me, that stability has always come from, um, from relationships and from being someone who's very trustworthy and being able to trust the other people around me. And so at that moment in time, I, I did feel like, wow, you know, all these, all these relationships that I really depended on and, and um, counted on, they're not there anymore. And I felt really kind of lost because of that. And so I, I definitely questioned a lot of things. You know, I questioned my love for climbing. I questioned my place in the climbing community. I questioned pretty much everything. I question all the decisions I had made. <laughs> and mm. I was like, wow, you know, where do I go from here? And so I, I think it's interesting. A lot of people that get into skydiving, you know, now having been in the sport for some time and meeting a lot of people, knowing a lot of people's stories, a lot of people get into skydiving um, because they have some big upheaval in their life. And I think skydiving is really symbolic. And I think it's very emotional because, there's a lot of things wrapped into doing something like jumping out of an airplane. You know, you really have to be prepared to deal with fear and um, challenging all these ideas that you've had in the past about the type of thing you would do or wouldn't do and what's safe and what's not safe. And so, so it's, it's a really, um, I think it's a really dramatic way to kind of confront a lot of those things in life. You are hearing Steph Davis. She's a Moab resident, owns a business with her husband in Moab, uh, Moab uh, Base Adventures. Um, and the new memoir is Learning to Fly, an uncommon memoir of human flight, unexpected love, and one amazing dog. So this is, it's interesting. You, you say there are a lot of reasons and some similar reasons why people go up and jump out of an airplane add some layers to that I'm sure uh, for you you come from rock climbing and the, and the two disciplines are very different they are it's it's funny because um, I do know a lot of climbers at this point who've become skydivers and base jumpers and then obviously I know a lot of people that aren't climbers that get into the sport and I I really think that for climbers it's there's a pretty difficult mental shift um, maybe even more so than somebody who's not a climber as far as standing in the door of an airplane and saying, okay, I'm going to jump out of this plane now, <laughs> or, um, you know, standing at the edge of a cliff and saying, I'm going to jump off the cliff, because for a climber, you're just always holding on, and you don't want to let go, and you don't want to fall. So it's, it's um, but, you know, it's a really empowering thing to have come from that mindset and then be able to shift that gear. And, and I think for everyone, you know, not necessarily just climbers that get into it, I think, Anybody that starts jumping, it's 
it's very human to not want to fall. And, and it's really, it's definitely empowering to, to A, decide you do want to fall, B, learn how to fall, and C, actually realize it's fun. Tell me about that first jump. I, I, I think in the book you, you talk about calling a friend who's shocked that you want to, you want to jump. Take me, take me jumping. What, what was that first jump like? Um, yeah, that was my friend, Brendan McHugh, a really dear friend of mine. Um, he's been skydiving for decades, and he's done thousands and thousands of skydives. He actually makes his living um, as a tandem master, so he just travels around the world and gets jobs at different drop zones and takes people jumping out of airplanes and also instructs skydivers who want to become jumpers. So so I called him up and said, hey, Brendan, I want to learn how to skydive. And, and he was totally shocked because, you know, I'd always, as a climber, been so unwilling to fall in the past. And at the time, he was living in Boulder, so he said, okay, come on out and we'll do it. And so I got a pretty intensive training course because, you know, I wasn't just another person who walked into the drop zone. This is a really, really close friend. And so he... um felt very fatherly and wanted to make sure I learned everything perfectly. So I went through a really intensive ground school experience with him almost too much, you know, with so much information. And then it's a funny thing to go from ground school where you're reading this book and people are telling you facts and numbers and all the things you're supposed to do. And then all of a sudden you're in this airplane and the doors open and it's cold and the wind's rushing and, you know, you're looking out the door and you're you're just thinking, oh, now I have to jump out of the plane and still remember all that stuff. So it's, it's really, really intense. Um, and again, that's, that's why people love it. That's why people want to skydive. That's why people want to base jump because it's so intense. And, um, and to be able to experience that, that level of intense emotion, I guess kind of on demand, is, is pretty unique. So uh, tell me about that first time. You you have to commit, right? You're you're up there, and and this is so different from rock climbing, where the key is to hold on. You have to right. you have to let go. I imagine that was scary and and freeing at the same time emotionally as well. You talk in the book about uh, you know it's a metaphor for letting letting go, dealing with your your loss with the experiences you've had. Yeah, and. And it is, it's amazing because, you know, now having jumped so many times, so many different places, and then now, you know, with Mario um, taking people on tandem-based jumps and kind of reliving that with people on a pretty regular basis, it's, it's really amazing how with jumping, it's all about that moment when you are at the edge, you know, whether it's the airplane door or the cliff, and you're looking down and you have to leave the edge and make that decision because you know you can't go back as soon as you leave. And so it, it, there's so much going on in your brain, and and um, just once the decision's taken, once you have left the edge, everything's different. But it, it becomes all bundled up into that one moment when you're just looking down and thinking, okay, I have to go. And then... Then what's the experience like? What if you're base jumping or jumping out of an airplane? Once you've made that commitment, you're you're out. I guess there's a there are some moments before you reach terminal velocity, and then peaceful. What's what's the experience like? Well, um, usually before you leave the edge, like I say, it's it's really intense. You know, you're questioning things, you're you're evaluating things, you're dealing with fear, you're dealing with emotions, you're you know, potentially going through this whole litany of, like, why am I even doing this? <laughs> and, then, and then once you've gone, suddenly it's just all happening. And so you're doing what you need to do, whether it's because you trained for it or you've done it a million times or you're, you're consciously going through each step in your brain. It's just as soon as you actually get yourself to leave the edge and get into the jump, then everything's happening. And, um, and it's an amazing experience to to be going through the air because, you know, as a human, we don't get to do that normally. I mean, birds get to do that all the time, but as a human being, it's not, it's not something that we can naturally do. So it's, it's almost indescribable what it feels like to be in the air and 
and to be moving in the air and to be comfortable there and and to actually have that feeling of flying. Hmm. We do have a caller, uh, Pat in Logan. Uh, Pat called 1-800-826-1495. You can as well, 1-800-826-1495. You can email us at upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Steph Davis is my guest. Learning to Fly is the book. Subtitle is Un- An Uncommon Memoir of Human Flight, Unexpected Love, and One Amazing Dog. Uh, Pat, uh, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Uh, listening uh, uh, to uh Ms. Davis, I feel a tiny bit guilty because I'm one of the ones who helped uh, uh, remove Dean from Patagonia's uh, sponsorship. Uh, but I think uh, uh, at the time, Dean talked about how on uh, the newscast in Salt Lake about a uh, great reverence for the uh, the arts and what a beautiful moment it was. And uh, his wife also talked about how beautiful this was and what a wonderful thing this was at the time. I mean, maybe she's how wonderful it was since then. But I think this is indicative of the uh, ego and viewpoint that climbers tend to have of nature. Uh, it's something for their ego to get a kick out of, rather than something to actually respect. The uh, I think this is uh, uh, kind of, you know, part of the um, problem that I see with the climbing community. Many people have come out defending Dean uh, and the regulations, I remember, were, were weak. They had been, uh, would have strictly forbid this in 1980, up to 88, but in the Republican era, regulations did soften. Uh, the day after the climb, the superintendent rewrote the regulations to forbid any kind of activity. Oh, and I also want to mention there was damage done to the arch. They expected it. There were several rope burns groups into the sandstone. Uh, it was climbed at least six times. There's uh, photographers were on top of the arch taking pictures of Dean climb up and down. So it was a, uh, you know, it's publicity stunt by Dean. And I e- emailed him myself and gave him my opinion. And, uh, thanks, and, thanks, you know, Pat. Well, the, uh, uh, if there was some, you know, personal pain involved. We'll uh, we'll get um, Steph Davis to re- to respond to some of the things that, uh, that, that Pat was saying. I guess that was part of the controversy. Uh, some people are afraid of damage, um, and uh, but I wonder to, to the main point there that uh, he he's accusing the climbing community, some in the climbing community, of uh, of maybe some some egocentrism, uh, thinking that uh, some of these great natural places were are for them only. Your response, Steph Davis. Well, I think the natural places are for everyone. Um, I think that, I think I would agree that people can be very human-centric. Um, that's something that I feel. Um, I think that everyone, whether you're a human, you're a lizard, you're an animal, you know, you got to be able to go to natural places. And I guess that was one really amazing thing you can see about the the so-called arch controversy because here we are all these years later um and it's it's um i guess it's neat to see how passionate people are um i guess that's one thing i liked about the whole thing was to see just how passionate people are about the wild places because that's how i feel too um so in a way i guess anything that brings that out in people is is definitely admirable do you, do you feel like climbing community, at least today, uh, takes pains to take care of the environment that they're climbing in? Yeah, I think, um, you know, people that do any outdoor sport are pretty cognizant that that you need the outdoors if you're going to do your sport. One, one thing I really enjoy about Moab is that I find that it's a very accepting community. I think that a lot of times it's really easy to think that your own pursuit is the most important and then you don't like the other people's pursuits. But in Moab, you see, you see pretty equal treatment of all the outdoor sports. You know, a lot of people get down on ATVers because they are burning fossil fuels and carrying around the desert. But at the same time, you know, they're enjoying their sport too. So it's not more or less important than me who wants to go hiking or climbing or base jumping. So I think the important thing is just to be respectful of everybody. We're talking with uh, Steph Davis, author of a new memoir, Learning to Fly, an uncommon memoir of human flight, unexpected love, and one amazing dog. We're going to take a brief break. We'll come back. Uh, I'm going to ask uh, Steph Davis about uh, how she discovered base jumping, what jumping does for her, and uh, 
the, the climbing as well, and uh, more topics to come uh, following the break. What do you do with that beautiful poinsettia now that the holidays are over? How does Badger remove a giant turnip from the garden? USU Extension horticulturist Jerry Goodspeed and author Jan Brett are on today's Zesty Garden along with Nancy Williams and a reading about turnips on Petals and Prose. Join us this morning at 10 o'clock. The following is an encore presentation of Access Utah. However, you can still participate in this conversation at upraccess at gmail.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with Steph Davis, Moab resident and author of a new memoir, Learning to Fly, an uncommon memoir of human flight, unexpected love, and one amazing dog. I want to get into talking about uh, base jumping, an experience uh, Steph Davis had jumping off a bridge near Twin Falls, Idaho, first time base jumping. Uh, I want to, uh, first of all, uh, Steph Davis, get your take on uh, sort of the, the, the dark side of of climbing and, and risky sports. Um, and uh, this happened in, in your neck of the woods not uh, so long ago. Corona Arch, I'm sure you're familiar with this, a young man from uh, West Jordan, uh, Kyle Stocking, uh, did what many people have been doing. Uh, you, you attach a rope to Corona Arch, you, you swing out, and it's a thrilling adventure, but uh, he unfortunately miscalculated the length of, of the rope. The rope's too long, died uh, out there. Uh, this is a combination of BLM and uh, CITLA lands, State Institutional Trust Land Administration, and uh, the, an official there quoted in the Salt Lake Tribune uh, saying that um, though uh, I think the, they have banned outfitters from taking people out there, as for the general public, he says uh, there's no way you can people, keep people out of there, these areas. No way on earth you can tell someone to not to climb a mountain. So they, they allow it. Some of the outfitters out there say, well, it would be safer if you allowed us to, to go in. I wonder, just speaking generally, Steph Davis, son, there there are dangers, and um, sometimes uh, people do make mistakes. And uh, I don't know, you know, that you you can't prevent someone, or should we prevent some of these people from going out there? Yeah, I did hear about that. It's really really sad. Um, you know, every year in Moab, there are a lot of accidents and fatalities because everyone comes here to do adventurous things and. And um, it's always really tragic when when things go wrong like that. Um, I guess it's a funny thing, you know, talking about risk and, and why we do the things we do. I think one thing, one reason I live in Moab is because a lot of it is BLM land, and the BLM has a, I find, a very respectable policy of mixing preservation with um, with allowing people to to go be people and do the things people do. And, you know, you can't sit there and control every person, and and you shouldn't really. But I I think the important thing when you're doing something risky is is to be really, really cautious about it. Um, And that means educating yourself, um, gaining experience, practicing, being really careful with your equipment, learning as much as you can all the time. And, you know, just as with life, that, along with luck, is what's going to keep you safe. By the way, the uh, the Sitla is in process of transferring these lands over to BLM, so it'll all be BLM uh, coming up here, part of a, a big trade between the two organizations. I wonder, um, part of this, the popularity of this particular, um, I don't know if you call it a stunt or a, or a sport, or what do you call it, call this, but is is the popularity of some of these things on YouTube. And so people learn about this on YouTube. It seems cool. They want to go and, and do it. Uh, I wonder what you think about that. Well, it's funny because um, before I ever started base jumping, like many people, I had only really seen it in outlets like that. And I I think that that it, there's always kind of the loud minority that portrays things in kind of a really reckless way. But But I know definitely with base jumping, it it is a really um, cautious sport, and it is very calculated. And yes, you know you can go do it in sort of a crazy manner and and kind of reckless and careless, and you may even get away with it for a while. But but if you want to be in it for the long haul and and um, do it in a more conservative fashion, then 
then you do need to become an expert and and approach it in a much more quiet way. Would you agree with some of these uh, quoted in this story? Is a couple of outfitters who say, "Hey, if you if you allowed us to to go and and do this, uh, we we would keep it safe." Well, I, you know, there's always a difference between between going with an outfitter and going on your own when you when you want to have an adventure and and for a lot of people it makes total sense to to you know show up in town you only have two days and you want to have a great time you want to be efficient and you want to be safe and it definitely makes sense to go work with an outfitter but then there are other people that you know maybe have more time on their hands um, maybe just want to poke into it a little more on their own different personality type um, and there's always going to be people that would rather learn by themselves as they go and and that's just part of um, you know part of what makes the world tick. I guess your advice to anyone would be uh, have some caution, right? To um, be very careful. Yeah, I think um, I think that's the most important thing that I have learned is you can do things that seem totally outlandish, um, but it often takes a long time. Listen, when to do get I need to, to that point? Um, so. Uh, I want to uh, to ask you just as we uh, we're, we just have a oh two or three four minutes left here, um, the the question is what does jumping do for you? What uh, what has that done for you? For me, it's been you know in the beginning definitely a pretty mind opening experience having been such a focused climber for so long, and entering a new sport, entering a new community, doing something so literally antithetical, you know all those were were great things for me to gain perspective. I think when you get so focused on one thing, sometimes you can lose perspective. And then beyond that, as I, you know, grew into somebody who is very passionate about base jumping, it's definitely become a big part of my life. I mean, now I base jump pretty much every day and I love everything about it. Um, you know, I love the feeling of it. I love the gear. I love the technical aspects. I love the community. Um, it's it's just a really wonderful thing to do. So I, I guess I found another passion in jumping. And we can't close your story without uh, a, a romantic ending. You you met uh, your current husband Mario, and I, I, there are pictures in the book of you on uh, top of a mountain for your wedding, and of course you you jumped after your wedding. Yeah, I think um, 70% of the wedding party jumped. <laughs> so our idea was just to, you know, go out to a beautiful place that we all love and be with a group of friends and just everybody have a good time. So it was a really, really nice day. You And you jump all over, right? You jump in Europe as well. Yeah, we go to Europe um, every summer and we fly wingsuits. They have a lot of tall cliffs there and we like to fly wingsuits off the cliffs. I've always wondered... That, that, you know, again, to me, I'm a more cautious person. I, you, you'd never catch me jumping off a cliff uh, with a wingsuit. But uh, that must be a, <laughs> a, a, a thrilling experience. But my question is, how do you how do you land? Though so you just you sort of pull pull up and land on your feet. How do you land with us? Uh, well, with the wingsuit, you always also have a parachute. Oh, I like, see. Okay, it's like a normal base jump. So you fly for a while, and then when you decide that it's time. You put the parachute out, and then you land the parachute. And this must be the closest we can come to being a bird. I imagine you're you're out there in your wingsuit. I, I feel like it is. I I would have to say that paragliding is probably even closer to being a bird. That's a different sort of flight. Um, you probably see that out at the point. There's a lot of paragliders out there with those big curved wings, and they're soaring around and catching the thermals exactly like a bird does. But when you're flying a wingsuit you feel that your body is the bird. And so you definitely are always losing altitude, unlike a bird. But but you maneuver, you can fly around, you can do barrel rolls, you can go where you want. So, so yeah, you do have this in your mind. You feel like this is what a bird is feeling like. Well, the memoir is Learning to Fly. Uh, Steph Davis is the author. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We appreciate uh, Steph Davis coming on with us. That is a conversation from 2013, and we revisited that uh, today uh, because uh, the book, Learning to Fly, an Uncommon Memoir of Human Flight, Unexpected Love, and One Amazing Dog, is out in paperback with a new epilogue. And thanks for listening to Access Utah Today.
commentator, Gina Wickwar. Living on the equator for two weeks is quite an experience. Living on the equator on the Galapagos Islands for one of those weeks is more than an experience. It's a life-changing adventure that can only be experienced in person. That's where my husband and I have been since Christmas, in Ecuador, the Galapagos, and finally Panama. What a joy. We've been planning this Galapagos excursion for many months. It was coordinated by Harvard's Museum of Science, which meant there would be several naturalists and experts who would join the nine couples who signed up to board the Isabella II and sail among the various islands. I immediately kindled Voyage of the Beagle and began collecting all the equatorial necessities. Sunscreen, bug dope, swimsuits, hiking boots, sunscreen, quick-drying shorts and t-shirts, New Year's Eve's paper hats, sunscreen, sunglasses, sun hats, windbreakers, passports, cameras, wet landing TiVos, and sunscreen. <laughs> you laugh, but we slathered through at least three tubes of number 70 sunscreen. All this paraphernalia needed to weigh no more than 42 pounds for the one piece of check luggage each of us was allowed, and no more than 15 pounds for each of our carry-ons. These weight limitations were mandated by the small plane we'd fly to the Galapagos. Talk about hand-wringing scrimping in the packing department. We landed at midnight in the Ecuadorian capital, Quito, 10,000 feet high. It's huge, nearly two million people, and surrounded by volcanoes. The one nearest the city, called Cayambe, was smoking like a cigar. A hotel staff member mentioned it had erupted gently sometime in October. He seemed quite nonchalant about it and even grinned when we looked horrified. We spent our first day there exploring the ancient city, founded during the pre-Inca times. The next day we were joined by our fellow travelers and spent two more days sightseeing Quito and the towns and villages north of the capital, buying Ecuadorian treasures at open-air markets, exploring cathedrals built more than 600 years ago, touring a famous chocolate export firm where we watched, and eventually ate, passion fruit-filled truffles, and touring a major rose export firm in the highlands. We stood on the equator where everyone's iPhone showed zero zero and heard a UNESCO-sponsored scientist give a brief lecture on the equator's history and influence. Then off early by plane to Guayaquil, a southern Ecuadorian port city. It is closer to the Galapagos than Quito, and as the plane had to fly to and from the Galapagos without refueling, Guayaquil was the better departure point. It is Ecuador's second largest city, 2.6 plus million, and its economic hub. More modern than Quito, it's flush with amazingly tall buildings that are beautiful and architecturally breathtaking. From there, we flew west 600 miles or so over the Pacific and landed on Santa Cruz. The Galapagos Islands number in the hundreds, but 15 are considered major. Santa Cruz is one of those. During the next week, we would explore it, Santa Fe, Florianda, Española, and San Cristobal. More on our real-life adventures among the tortoises, sea lions, boobies, both red and blue-footed, herons, flamingos, iguanas, and many, many more flora and fauna. Just tune in in two weeks more. I'll be back. This is Gina Wickwar. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at 